and uh, thank you for joining us at uh, one of the talks of the Cambridge Science uh, Festival. Uh, I am uh, Alessandro Esposito, I'm a physicist, uh, but I work on cancer biology at the MRC Cancer Unit here just uh, uh, around uh, the corner. Um, today I, I prepared a, um, a presentation um, around a certain concept that are like uh, what is life, what is the cell, how the cell is taking decisions, and therefore what is intelligence from the perspective of a single cell, um, and how cancer has actually possible of a cellular decision, and how we study um, uh, these uh, this, uh, processes. So we start our journey from uh, understanding what is uh, life, and actually we start from the bottom of uh, the sea. Uh, these are uh, hydrothermal uh, vents, but even nowadays they generate uh, a lot of chemistry and, uh, and energy <coughs> under the ocean. These hydrothermal vents are actually cut from the seafloor uh, through which uh, hot water and chemicals and, uh, and gases are bubbling through. Uh, they generate uh, very good habitats for uh, marine organisms, and it is a likely place uh, where uh, life has been uh, born on planet Earth where there are uh, many different molecules, uh, chemistry and energy, which are two essential features of uh, life. To have uh, an active chemical system that is fueled by energy to do things. Uh, over time, uh, molecules evolve to more complex uh, entities. Some of these molecules actually acquire the capability to be self-organized. And uh, you can imagine, you can think about bubbles that uh, straws are making in water. And the bubbles, what it's doing is just uh, separating the outside world from the inside world. And now we have a system that has its own identity, which is a chemical system that is well defined in space and cut can catalyze reactions in a different manner. And we can identify, we can start to see it. Now you can think about these um, uh, chemical entities that are near the hydrothermal vents, and uh, something is happening. The, the environment is changing tectonic plates are moving, and, uh, and the vent is uh, shutting down. At this point, there is not the chemistry and the energy that support them, and uh, many of them start to dissipate. And this introduced me to another feature of the biological system, is uh, they, this system has to preserve their integrity. And in a sense, in this case, they have to be able to move around in order to find a second hydrothermal vent where they can feed. So these are four features for me that are very important in, in a living system, but we're missing one. Uh, so we have this uh, chemical system, is, uh, is active and uh, has to face environmental changes. So the first thing it has to do is to sense the environment. So um, uh, biological systems have to evolve uh, eyes, antennas, uh, various type of uh, sensors in order to sense the environment. And the second aspect, they need to be able to act on the environment. They need to be moving around in, in the sea or in the land. They need to extract uh, nutrients from it. So they need to do actions. And there is something missing between sensing and acting, which is processing information and choosing between actions. Even a chemical system, if you want to maintain uh, all these properties, has to take uh, a decision, has to process information. And this has to be done at a chemical level. This leads me to uh, another question, what is uh, intelligence? Um, intelligence, uh, if you check uh, on the internet, you find hundreds of different uh, definitions of intelligence. And uh, certainly, I'm not referring to human intelligence, which is a very complex trait 
uh, human beings and uh, various different types of intelligence. Um, I'm not even referring to artificial intelligence, and I'm mentioning this today uh, because it's becoming very popular when you, do, when you use Google, you are actually using an artificial intelligence. The talk after mine from my colleague Shamil uh, is about um, artificial intelligence uh, used uh, in, in to support battle in this country, using artificial intelligence to it. I'm referring to something that is more primordial in nature, so intelligence that can be acquired by just a simple chemical uh, system. And I dig through uh, many hundreds of definitions of uh, intelligence, and I found this from uh, um, uh, a scientist working on artificial intelligence who is defining any system that generates adaptive behavior to meet goals in a range of environments can be said to be intelligent. And this is exactly how I describe these chemical entities as the origins of life. Um, Uh, this is a, a, a jellyfish, and uh, it will uh, appear twice in, uh, in my talk. In this case, I just want to mention that jellyfish is 95% water and is brainless. Certainly not intelligent from the point of view of us human beings, but has to take decisions, has to navigate the sea, has to find food and uh, react. So what is the cell? Um, I have slightly introduced it, but uh, just want to describe that if you check the palm of your hand, and uh, about a couple of millimeters of your hand are represented in this chain. So there are about uh, 3,000 cells here. Uh, a single cell is about a tenth uh, or a twentieth of a, a millimeter. Um, and uh, one single cell is uh, made for about 80% of uh, water. It's just water. The rest is uh, uh, molecules uh, such as uh, uh, protein, uh, protein cleavage, sugars, um, that are actually building molecular machines that do things. When I move my hand, actually I have uh, cells that are contracting, that do things, um, and they process information as I've introduced before. There are also molecules that are structured, scaffold, storage. The DNA inside our cells store information about how to build other cells. And, and the components of cells, and metabolites, so the energy, molecules that store energy for the cells. But what are uh, cellular uh, decisions? And I'd like to illustrate this with uh, um, a few examples, and I start from uh, uh, embryonic uh, development. So you can have a single cell that is fertilized, and this morning, in this moment has one copy of uh, what you call the genome, so DNA, let's say the blueprint for all the molecules inside uh, the cells, and uh, once fertilized, the eggs start to um, divide, to split, it clones itself. These are two cells that are identical to each other and have the same DNA. With the days passing, cells are doubling, it's constantly cloning itself. The DNA remains the same. But at a certain point, cells start to be a little bit different. Uh, we, call, we say that they are differentiated. If you wait a little bit longer, an embryo is forming, and cells start to form different tissues, until odontoid, where we have body <coughs> Now the DNA is still exactly the same, with one exception that is the main difference. Um, but uh, the cells, how they look and how they function, the cells of the brain and cells of the liver are actually very different. They do different things. And how this is achieved is achieved by what is called uh, cell fate decisions. In this uh, part, cells are deciding to commit to different fates to become a brain cell or a gut cell. 
Now, in adulthood, are such decisions uh, important in adulthood? Well, uh, an average body of an adult is made of uh, 3 trillion cells. One billion of these cells are actually dying every day and have to be replenished. And now, this I'm not considering the cells of the blood because they're even more dynamic. And just to give you a scale, 3 trillions are actually 30 times the people that ever lived on planet Earth. And uh, 1 billion is about 15 times the decay <coughs> So there are a huge amount of cells that are forming our bodies and they are fighting. By the end of our lifespan, we have been made of 30 trillion cells, the large majority of which is already dead. We shed them off. And therefore, to maintain our bodies, cells have to constantly divide, die, migrate, uh, specialize into different functions. Or in other terms, cells have to constantly take choices. <coughs> Uh, in order to support the functionality and integrity of our body. Technically, we call this homeostasis. What is taking decisions inside the cells? Again, is its chemistry. So uh, we humans have a brain. We are made of neurons that are highly interconnected, and these networks are taking the decisions. We are taking decisions with these networks of neurons that are speaking with each other with electrical activities. Individual cells do not have a brain that is made of cells, but is made of uh, chemical reactions that are all interconnected with each other and the process of So this is uh, actually rather old movie captured in the 1960s from David Rogers at Vanderbilt University. It's very popular to uh, represent what we call chemotaxi, which is the movement of an organism in response to a chemical uh, stimulus. What you will see on my back is actually a, a white cells uh, in, uh, uh, in between different cells, which these are red cells, so these are in, the, in our blood. And the little guy is actually a bacterium that is trying to escape, while the white cell is trying to chase it. This is a typical response of the immune system. And uh, although this is actually describing chemotaxis, actually I think it's also describing how a cell is taking decisions. Do cells take decisions? Of course, they don't have a conscience. You shouldn't even understand this. But they have to steer around and to chase, try to chase this bacterium. And finally, when they touch it, they will grab it and eat it. And this is how our immune system is working. Keep in mind, this is not even an organism. It's one cell of our body. So, which is the relation between cellular decision and cancer? And actually, I have a little game to play with you. Uh, for which I actually really will need uh, your participation and your improvised hand in response to some of the questions. And uh, in order to participate in this game, I will give you a zebra crossing, I will give you a traffic light, and effectively I will ask you in different scenarios if you cross the road. Uh, now, I should be very simple, because if the traffic light is red, you don't cross the road, if the traffic light is green, you do cross the road. Uh, so now, we start very simple. Uh, please raise your hand if you cross the road where there is no traffic and the, the light is green. Okay, some of you will stay still on the pavement forever, which is worrying, but the majority <laughs> of you actually is crossing. So now, the, 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 the traffic light is red and this is busy traffic. Um, who of you is crossing the road? <laughs> Maybe you survived little long from the scene. Now, let's... Uh, uh, assume that there is no traffic, uh, the light has just passed, is red now, but you're missing the bus. Who of you is crossing the road? Mm -hmm. 
Now the same scenario, but you are late for a job interview. Are you crossing the road? Two days crossing the road? There is less people that care about job interview than just generally missing the bus. Uh, now the last scenario, uh, or the last two of them, uh, it is 2 a.m. in the morning. There is absolutely no traffic, but the traffic light is still on and you have two views crossing the road. Now the same pattern, but we are in Germany. Of <laughs> <laughs> course. Okay, so I can say this because I did in Germany and I loved it and I actually love views. And therefore I probably wouldn't cross. Maybe some days I would. And uh, the point I'm sorry for that. <laughs> the point is that I want to make uh, I presented you six different scenarios. In five of them, the traffic light was red, and actually many of you crossed anyway. Um, and the point I want to make is that it uh, all depends on the rules, the context, and our individual differences. Some of us has more respectful rules or is more risk-taking. It depends really on the context. And the cells have to do exactly the same thing uh, every day, every second. And they have to do this with a huge amount of information from the, uh, from the environment, sometimes contradicting each other. So says they have to take choices like we do. Uh, if you wonder, this is what the traffic light is in our installation in China. Um, different noise. Um, so I just want to illustrate something else about the variability in cellular decisions with a little pop concise for the youngest. Um, you can, this is my microwave, uh, and uh, we are going to pop um, some uh, popcorn. You can imagine these being all identical from a single crop, and uh, there is always something very annoying when you do popcorn in a microwave or many different uh, techniques. At a certain point, this is of course is sped up, at a certain point, that they start to pop. They pop at different times, and finally, you are ready with lots of popcorns. You open the microwave. And suddenly you notice not all the pop, not all the kernels actually pop. And this is very annoying, very annoying. And these kernels, they can be even from the same crop, they can be genetically identical, and you will always find a situation, maybe they did better than this. But the reason is because even if they are genetically identical, even from, from the same crop, the kernels are in different positions in the crop, and they, they receive sunlight in different, uh, in different ways, they pack moist in different ways. And, uh, and therefore, different kernels will pop at the same time. And this is true for us, this is true also for cells. They can be in the same organism, they can have the same DNA, but they will take slightly different decisions during their lifespan. Uh, so, uh, cells are constantly taking decisions. A basic decision is, for instance, between uh, uh, cell death and cell survival. Uh, they are faced constantly by DNA damage, we use uh, uh, drugs uh, uh, sometimes. There are mutations that are causing uh, cancer. And they, the cells have to take these decisions right, but sometimes they don't. They don't. And if you check the, the definition of cancer, the website of NHS choices, you will see that cancer is a, cause, a condition where cells in a specific part of the body grow and reproduce uncontrollably. So the key word for me here is uncontrollably. So they lose the potential to be controlled properly and they take wrong decisions um, that are uh, in front of them. So what is a, a cell decision? And I would like to illustrate this uh, with a little um, contraption. This is called the Galton board, uh, which was invented by Sir Francis Galton um, a century ago. 
Um, and this is to illustrate uh, some uh, uh, property of uh, random events, statistics of random events. Uh, I'm not going to enter the details of this uh, instrument, but I just want to illustrate um, each individual marble here that is attracted by, accelerated by gravity, it's pulled down, and they are going to hit this pin. So these marbles have no choice, they, they don't have a conscious, they, they have no will to decide, they are going to randomly go to the left or to the right of each individual pin. How this is connected with the uh, uh, cellular policy? Well, uh, talk to another analogy. You can imagine the pins that I've shown you, the pins of the integrated circuits that are making our computers that are processing information. In our case, these pins are simply bacteria interactions that are interconnected with each other and they're taking, uh, they're processing information in return. Uh, so what is happening, you can imagine a cell that has to take a decision as a marble, and uh, when a, a marble, a cell is uh, hitting this pin, this pin interaction, it can go always on the left or always on the right. In this case, it's going always on the right, right left. It's going to hit this box, uh, which will be representing the number of cells that are undergoing cellular death. The cells that, uh, that are always going on the right of the pin are going in this box, which is uh, representing cellular proliferation, so growing and dying. And the ones in the middle, they will stay still, what we call cellular quiescence. So this is what happened at the bottom part of a, of a, a Galton board. And you see that uh, they go to the left, they go to the right, and the large majority is going into uh, the middle. And the important thing is that uh, this is symmetric. There are a number of cells or marbles that are arriving here, and then the same number is arriving here, completely at random. And if these were cells deciding if to grow or to die, um, they would compensate the same amount of cells that are dying, they are compensated by cells that are dividing. So when, uh, how the cell decides a certain uh, uh, context? Well, effectively, the cells are um, in, uh, summing up different uh, signals that are, that are proliferative in nature, and instructing the cells to proliferate. For instance, if we have a wound, we need more cells to proliferate, to replace this, the cells of the skin that are not anymore uh, there. Um, but if we have mutations, for instance, caused by the sun that mutated our DNA, uh, these cells have to uh, uh, spontaneously die in order to protect us from cancer. Um, and effectively, if uh, there are signals that are um, more towards proliferation, proliferation, this pin is actually moved, these chemical reactions are offset, and this can be caused by mutations, what we call oncogenic uh, signals. So in this situation, with the pin moved uh, away, you have a marble, now it has not any more equal probability to go to the left or to the right, but it is more biased to go to the right, and therefore to increase the probability of a cellular proliferation and, 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 and the growth that might become uh, cancer. So this is what uh, uh, happened with the Galton uh, board, as we tilted a little bit, you actually tilt, you shift the probability for the cells to decide to grow rather than to have a balance. So our tissues is not anymore in balance, in homeostasis. So very often it is always about a tug of war between us and cancer and a tug of war between several decisions that are opposite in nature. 
And uh, as I mentioned, there is a lot of uh, what's called heterogeneity, variability between cells taking decisions. The red cells are cells that proliferate, the blue cells are cells that are uh, uh, dying. This is a normal cell, it is imbalanced. Um, in a cancer cell, there are more stimuli that are favoring uh, growth, and therefore there is an excess of this uh, red um, cell. And when we develop drugs, uh, we try to force cancer cells, and specifically cancer cells, to uh, undergo a different type of cell death to outcompete the effect of uh, oncogenic signals that are favoring proliferation. This is our therapeutic uh, action. Unfortunately, uh, drugs are going to be received also by normal cells, and they are going also to offset their probability, and we get side effects. And uh, all that we are doing, both in terms of research and clinicians, is trying to maximize the difference between the effects in order to maximize good therapeutic action and to minimize side effects. So this is the reason why it is uh, really never possible to have 100% of effects with absolutely no uh, side effects, because there is this variability inside uh, the cells. So how do we study cell chemistry? And it's very important because we don't really know exactly the mechanism by which uh, cells take decisions in different contexts and how uh, mutations that we call cancer are actually acting in them. Uh, we very often use uh, microscopes, and uh, microscopes are uh, old tools. Uh, this, this Robert Cook, Cook didn't invent the microscope, but he was um, one of the first adopters and in, in biology, and in particular about 1665, where he published his famous uh, uh, book, Micrographia. And this is a, a type of microscope that he would be using. Um, and he, he didn't invent the microscope, but he invented the term uh, cell, uh, watching plants and noticing there are kind of components that resemble uh, the honeycomb uh, of, of, of the bees, and they call it uh, cells. And why do we need microscopes? Well, first of all, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, uh, cells are small, um, but also cells are fragile, and uh, light can be gentle. So using light to uh, observe cells has great advantages. But also uh, cells uh, are taking decisions in real time, so we want to watch them while they are, they are taking decisions, while they are behaving. Um, and as I mentioned, cells are all a little bit different from each other, and therefore very often, if we take cells, if we take averages, um, without describing individual cells, actually we miss something from uh, the picture. Uh, no, it's okay. It's a, every time there is a movie, it's easy. <laughs> um, so, and I would like to illustrate with a, a very large balloons that I want to bring today, and I didn't because it's something that pop, and they are very large, and so they're too noisy. Uh, this is just to uh, say, if we have a cell that is opaque, we don't see it inside, but actually we can uh, start to have lights from within the balloon, and you might see some shapes uh, in, in, inside here, here, here. In different colors, you see uh, different balloons, which are seen much better in, uh, in, in this case. We have three structures that are three different colors inside this balloon. So microscopy is very good because it allows us to peek inside um, the cell, like we would peek with an MRI machine inside the brain of a person taking decisions. But it is uh, bad, uh, as at least the traditional microscopy wouldn't allow us to measure chemistry, to measure energy inside uh, the cells. Well, what is good in uh, helping us to measure this feature is biochemistry. Um, we, there are analytical chemical tools where we take our cells, we actually 
practically destroy them, and uh, we analyze the content of uh, the cells with the chemical uh, tools. If we go back to the balloons, uh, effectively, <coughs> this means popping the balloon and uh, seeing, watching the content of the balloons. And now we have little elements we need to try to understand what they were doing inside the cell. Uh, and biochemistry is, uh, is great, uh, but uh, as I'm pointing out, they don't preserve the identity, identity of individual cells. So both techniques taken separately, they limit our under understanding of how cells take uh, decisions. But this changed uh, over the last uh, decade with a journey that is a very long uh, journey, which actually started uh, before the Second World War in Japan. Uh, by a person called uh, Shimomura, uh, who before the war, uh, he was watching the bay uh, and started to notice that there were sparks coming from the sea and uh, speaking with fishermen that told him that actually sparks are from jellyfish. Um, he was very interested in that uh, and uh, after the war he was uh, capable to resume uh, his quest to understand why jellyfish and, uh, and how jellyfish are emitting light. And he isolated what we call nowadays the green fluorescent protein. It's a protein that is naturally fluorescent and that can make the cells or the animals that extract this protein visible, fluorescent. Um, and then in the, we need to wait for the 1990s um, because in the 60s we didn't have the technology to be able to use the green fluorescent protein. But uh, over the decades we had better tools uh, of genetics and molecular biology in order to engineer our own proteins and, uh, and uh, living animals. So Chalfi uh, created CLLs uh, of the worm that extracts uh, the green fluorescent protein and was able to use it as a marker of where, when the proteins are expressed and where they are expressed. And uh, two years later, uh, Miyawaki in the lab of uh, uh, Roger Chen encased uh, the first genetically encoded biosensor is a molecule that is artificially engineered to be expressed by cells and we report to us about biochemical reactions happening in the living cell. And this was a, a great um, uh, breakthrough. Roger Chen is a, is a, is a, is a Cambridge, Cambridge uh, <coughs> uh, um, uh, Shimomura, Shalfi and Chen have been honored with the Nobel Prize in 2008 for their contribution to the development of the fluorescent protein. And many, many other people uh, have contributed to the generation of uh, a full palette of different colors of fluorescent proteins taken by jellyfish or by corals or other marine animals. It looks like fluorescence biology is very common under the skin. Uh, I've been used to study different types of animals. We are personally using only uh, cancer uh, uh, cells. Uh, I've been used, for instance, in fish. Uh, here there is a, a, a visualizing the heart, you can see the heart beating, um, and it allows us to study uh, cardiovascular disease in, the, in, in a better way. And this can be expressed in the brain, and this is allowing us to study neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer and, uh, and Parkinson's. This is one of the earliest movies uh, ever done for this type of uh, sensors from uh, Miyawaki, and what you are seeing here is the pharyngeal muscle of a worm, Sierdans, uh, that is expressing this protein, and is reporting by changes of uh, uh, colors, um, calcium concentration, so signaling ongoing into the cell. 
And these are actually proteins that we can engineer in the lab uh, that, is, uh, uh, that are sensed in the presence of these calcium molecules, and they change their structure, and this causes changes in color that we can fix with a microscope. And a lot of our work is to genetically engineer this type of sensor to put that in the cells and to monitor their internal biochemistry. So this is uh, how a microscope looked like a few uh, centuries ago. Sorry, I'm checking the time. Uh, a few centuries ago. Nowadays, microscopes have changed quite a bit. Um, this is something that you might be, might be able to recognize from, uh, if not from professional experiences, at least from, uh, from movies. This is kind of how a microscope looks like uh, nowadays. Um, but we have quite a few different things mounted on the microscope as well. There is this uh, blue camera. Uh, these are very new technologies available from uh, a couple of years. And uh, you might be uh, surprised to know that this is similar technology that is on the roof of uh, some stadium cars. You see them touching on the computer images of Google cars. Uh, these are called ligers, and they measure the distance of objects by shooting <coughs> photons against a wall and to measure the photons are coming back. And because we know the speed of uh, light, we can measure the distance of the wall. We are doing, we are doing the same thing, but in fluorescence, and this is allowing us to measure the bacterial reactions as they happen inside uh, the cells. And then there are microscopes that may, you may recognize a little bit less because they are so big that you need an entire room uh, to host them. And these two microscopes I've shown you today are actually at MIT Cancer Unit, the other one that, that, that we are building. And thanks to merging together microscopy and biochemical imaging, we can preserve the identity and the integrity of each individual cell. We can measure the energy flow into the cells and the chemistry of the cell, and therefore, uh, it is only recent, recently we can really start to study how the cells take decisions and let's say the intelligence of uh, the cell. And as I think I have a bit of time, um, I would like to show you a, a last um, uh, example. And this is taken from um, our uh, laboratory. Um, I, we have uh, um, spent uh, a good part of the decade to generate um, these uh, sensors, these uh, very long fluorescent proteins, uh, exploiting different properties, different colors, different spectral properties of them. And now we can put them together in one cell. So we don't, we can't, we don't have uh, the possibility to image only a single biochemical reaction, but multiple biochemical reactions. And therefore we can follow what happens in general in these biochemical uh, networks. And they really, without, uh, uh, too much details. I want to just to show you how this type of lab uh, looks like. So the idea is we have three enzymes, three, three biochemical reactions we want to follow, and they will look like uh, blue, green, or, or red, or blue, cyan, uh, uh, magenta. And uh, this is one cell in three different colors. Uh, and uh, and uh, at, at time zero, we actually add to the cells um, a, a drug that is used uh, in a biocancer, which is called and uh, the, these are cancer cells, and this, the, the, the scope is peculiar uh, uh, to these cancer cells. And uh, you will see as time passes in this movie, which recapitulates about 16 hours, the cells suddenly start to blend. You see here, this blend. 
Now we know that this is a type of cell death which is called necrosis. Uh, but most importantly, now we are capable to measure these traces. This is just telling us that uh, in these three colors, these three different chemical reactions are, are ongoing. There is no chemical reaction here, and now there is. The cell is deciding to trigger the cell death by necrosis. Uh, this is a different cell, but it's on the same probably. In the same experiment, it was not far from this one. Therefore, it received cisplatin, which came through this plug at the same time. Uh, but what is happening is here at the ninth hour, at the ninth hour, uh, this cell decides to die. This one doesn't. But a little bit later, it does. But it's very different. This type of cell death is called apoptosis. And also, biochemically, you see that this is different. This is a much sharper uh, response, and uh, all the three chemical reactions are robustly um, uh, activated. And this is something that was not possible until a few years ago. And, uh, uh, and we are very proud that now it's possible to peek into the biochemistry of the cells with this um, complexity. Uh, so, in, in, in just a few years ago, we would be able only to do uh, averages, so to measure population of cells. We have uh, several uh, thousands of cells or millions of cells together, and we would measure these uh, traces. There are these three biochemical reactions that at time zero are triggered by cisplatin, and we just simply know that these three biochemical reactions are actually starting to, uh, to go on. And cells, in average, they die. Now with these uh, microscopy tools, we actually know that this is not what is happening. There are actually, these responses are much sharper. And there are two different uh, types of cells. Cells that die earlier, cells that die later. And uh, this is uh, somehow decided by this chemical reaction that in one case is active, in the other case is not active. So this group of cells are dying of this cell death, death that is called apoptosis. And this group of cells is dying of this cell death that is called necrosis. Now you might wonder who cares? The important thing is to kill cancer cells, which is absolutely uh, true. Um, but uh, as to be said, that apoptosis is considered a very um, coordinated, very well organized type of cell death, um, while uh, necrosis is considered a quite a messy business, <laughs> where the cells is actually rupturing and uh, spilling all its content in, uh, in the tissue. And this is causing inflammation. And inflammation can be actually uh, very bad uh, during therapy or can be very good. Until a few years ago, it was considered just bad because it was potentially supporting uh, cancer. But nowadays, clinicians have discovered that actually the immune system can help to fight cancer. And therefore, a good um, understanding of how the causes of apoptosis are triggered by blood is very important to support the work of the clinicians. Well, I have just the last uh, two slides uh, to give also some time for questions if you uh, are interested. Um, so I hope that I guided you a little bit in, in this uh, brief zone about understanding how cells decide and how cancer mutation hijacks the brain uh, of, of, of the cells. And I hope that I show you that uh, how in a tiny drop of, uh, of uh, water, as, uh, as small as a tenth of a milliliter, a lot of complex chemistry is happening that is uh, processing information such as the processor that is inside the computer, or, or of course, the brain. 
Um, this is possible only thanks to highly interdisciplinary research. We are physicists, biologists, chemists, clinicians, and many other uh, backgrounds working uh, together. Uh, but of course, it's also um, possible so thanks to all the communities, because uh, what we do is done through the faxes that we collect digitally and the charities that are, um, uh, you are donating money to. And therefore, it's actually really a collective uh, effort of the entire community, not only the scientific community. And I'm excited because nowadays we can start to really see into the individual living self-taking decisions. Uh, under the influence of cancer causing mutations. And I like always to make the analogy with uh, how we study the brain, uh, the human brain, um, where in the past you would have to wait uh, for someone donating their brains after death to uh, a scientist that would dissect it and check how it's made. But nowadays we don't have to do this. We can use um, EEG cups or MRI machines where we can peek peek into a functioning brain while a person is taking decisions and we try to understand how the brain is working. And it's kind of what we are trying to do on individual cells. Uh, so just uh, the acknowledgement, uh, my founders are the Medical Research Council. Um, um, and uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I started to found the Antifungal Cancer Researchers UK. So thanks to MRC and Cancer UK, this means thanks to you and uh, the University of uh, Cambridge. Also, we need to think uh, that this Cambridge Science Festival uh, is taking a lot of work from many uh, volunteers. Um, and I need to thank in, uh, in, in our lab, uh, Susan, Pablo, Kushali, Andrew, and Annie have worked really hard uh, for events that are ongoing at CAP here around the corner and that before it would be possible to, to visit. Uh, Ashuya, uh, uh, that uh, for the MRC Cancer Unit coordinated all our um, uh, activities. And uh, I would like also to mention that uh, after my talk at 2.30 in this room, there will be Shamit speaking about uh, artificial intelligence and its use for medical research. Uh, and uh, the director of our institute, um, Ashok Mukherjee, who will speak about the origin of cancer at 3.30 again here around the corner at, uh, at and of course, thank you uh, for uh, coming here today, and I would really welcome your questions if there is. So we have someone with a microphone. If you'd like to ask a question, just stick your hands up and we'll come to you. about human behavior, 
and we know very little about in between. So I think that uh, um, uh, new work on uh, bioinformatics, for instance, or even including uh, AI work to fill the gap is, is, is very important. And specifically in my field, um, uh, automation of uh, microscopic platform that can do what we do in a much simpler way uh, might be uh, something that facilitate, will facilitate our Transmit the message 
who are our leaders, and the cells actually is responding with a message where it, there is encoded in it uh, something about their biochemistry.